Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 157. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, back again with the returning champion, all the way from the other end of the world, Mr. John Thomas. John, how are you doing? Doing good. Happy to be here again. I'm really enjoying your holiday photos on Instagram, by the way. They're very festive. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, byproduct of getting a better camera for the YouTube channel as I passively took up photography but you really don't have to be good at photography if you have a good camera like, i mean i'm sure like if you're a high level you do but you know the camera does all the work that's the secret <laughs> that is my favorite thing about modern technology is it's getting closer to impossible to take a bad photo yeah which is important for me because i've got a kid and i'm terrible at taking photos so i really like it when the camera does the heavy lifting for me yeah for sure and then you can even edit it afterwards it's crazy yeah <laughs> uh the joys of modern technology well with that said i'm having a lovely zoom call here with my buddy john and something i wanted to talk to you about for quite a while john is something we alluded to oh boy i want to say over 60 episodes ago i think on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, last time you were on something that you brought up was you talked about the the pitfalls of principles yeah. which I think is a super important thing to talk about. And at the time, I remember when you brought that up, I remember thinking, this is a bit different from what most people say. But the more mm. I, I thought about it and the more I dug into what you were saying, the more I think there is an important argument to be made there. And we've actually mm -hmm. kind of carved out a whole concept about this that we put in our database, just about the the need to be wary of over-prescribing the right answer and, and speaking in absolutes. And I'd love to dig into this. So maybe with that said... Why don't you kick this off? Let's resume that convo from last time. Tell me about principles and why these can be a bad place to start your students. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably have had my view on principles evolve quite a bit as well since that conversation. So I think there's positives and negatives, right? So I think the benefit of a principle is like, you're not always going to be able to calculate everything, right? So like, you know, if you're trying to like, say, learn how to pass like the daily Hiva guard, there's like, there's so many variations and so many variables to consider it's hard to have an answer for everything, right? So like, if you look at chess, right, you can memorize some openings, right? Like you can have like, okay, I know what to do if they do this, but there's so many possibilities at some point, it is literally impossible for you to calculate everything, right? And I guess jujitsu is somewhere on that scale, right? So like, you can have common answers for common positions, but there's just going to be times that someone does something abstract that like you've never seen before or whatever. And in those cases, some principles can function as a good way to give you like a compass in a difficult situation. Because like, you know, take like the idea of like, 
you know, you need to get chest over chest to finish a guard pass, right? You need to have chest to chest with their shoulder blades pinned. That's a true statement about the end of the position, right? So if you know that's the case, when you get caught in a position that you don't know, you can kind of like use that as like a compass, like, oh, well, I don't know how to solve this specific situation on a micro level, but I know if I can get chest over chest, that's probably somewhere in the right direction. So it can function as a useful guide. Where I think it can be dangerous or negative is when you try to like treat it like an absolute law of physics or something. And actually even the laws of physics are not constant, right? They're always changing. Like Einstein's like rules of relativity completely broke Newtonian physics before that. And then realistically, that doesn't even mesh with quantum mechanics now. So like at some point, they'll probably even have to evolve that. So you just have to be careful where like, if I say something like always have posture, right? If you're lost in a position, you don't know what to do. It may be good to be like, well, maybe keeping my posture is good here, right? But if you become too stifled with that, it may be that there's options to get through the position by actually like putting your head down, for example. So it's kind of like, I think you need a little bit of both. It is useful to have those principles, but there's always going to be cases that violate that, that still work, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. So you have to kind of exercise some personal decision-making on that. Yeah, I think that it's important, too, to clarify when we say principles, I, I guess we should probably talk about exactly what that means, because I noticed that in the jujitsu community, you hear all of these terms like principles, concepts, systems, and they all mm-hmm. get used somewhat interchangeably, but there's a slight difference between them. And I think that principles are an important thing to talk about, because when someone says principle, usually they're talking about something that is sort of immutable, like something that you can't really question, or at least you're not supposed to, right? Gravity, you know, for example, would be something that we kind of consider to be a principle. Given given the extent of our knowledge, there currently are not that many exceptions to a rule like that. But the challenge is in the jujitsu landscape, when people are talking about things that are high-level concepts and they use the word principle, they often make it sound like there's a lot more certainty than there actually is. And I think that's where people get into trouble. I mean, the example that I always give as a, a very common fundamental example is when you are a white belt, there is certain tribal knowledge that almost every instructor is going to tell you that you're later going to have to unravel. I mean, if, if you grew up, you know, around the time that you and I did, I'm sure, John, that at some point you were told things like never cross your ankles when you're on someone's back. Sure. I was even told never cross your ankles when you're arm barring someone. And I was right, told yeah. when someone is mounted on you, never stick your arms up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And these are good guidelines for someone who doesn't have a single clue what they're doing, right? If you start off in jujitsu, your instinct, your natural instinct is often going to be counterproductive. So it's helpful to some extent to tell these white belts, don't do that. But the problem is a lot of the times our instructors send white belts the message that what we're saying is never do that. And that's simply not true. I mean, we just saw Buchecha, you know, win a fight with his ankles crossed, taking someone's back. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but for the sake of keeping things simple for white belts, we sometimes over-optimize the instruction and we make it sound like we're giving them like, like a law that can never be violated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that can be very helpful from your white to blue belt stage. But then as you get to brown and black belt and you start developing more nuance, I think that it's you need to make sure that your students know, hey, all of those things that we told you before, those were guidelines. They weren't principles. They weren't laws. And it's okay to break the rules sometimes if you know what you're doing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, totally agree. So, I mean, with that said, I guess, like I said, some of the most common examples that you're likely going to get when you're talking about 
incorrect principles that you're likely to encounter in your jujitsu journey. Some of them are things like, you know, you never cross your ankles when you're on someone's back. Sure. That's something that yeah. just simply is not as definitive as we like it to sound. Never cross your ankles when you're going for an arm bar is another one that I've heard. Is there anything else that you see students doing a lot that you know they were told never, ever, ever do this or always do this? But yeah, so like, may only think of a couple ones. One might be like, always connect your elbow and knee, like, no, like, always have your elbow and knee connected, kind of like, because they think that's going to protect them from like omoplatas and triangles, for example. But I think there's plenty of times that I don't have my elbow and knee connected. Uh, maybe like when you're in closed guard, like, never grab above their like hip line or something. You know, it's like I grab in the armpits all the time. Always have posture that can be a bit confusing because like, I do think often it is good to like have your head up, but like if I'm doing a knee cut, sometimes I pin my head on the floor mm -hmm. and put my shoulder on their jaw. And in that case, I don't have posture, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to think of them offhand. I usually, usually see them, but like you said, like it is generally true that like if someone was in a position and they have no idea what to do, then, you know, posturing is probably not a bad choice, right? It's probably yeah. not going to like, get you killed most of the time every now and then it could it might be like if you're in de la Hiva and then you posture and the guy does a cow tear ankle lock that could be bad right yes so there is cases that it wouldn't be but sure if i like if i have someone who doesn't have like a ton of knowledge and i just have to give them something that's going to make them function better on the mat you know generally you could throw something like that out and they're going to do better than like nothing right Mm -hmm. Like you said, I think the issue is more when people are taking these things as things they cannot violate, right? Because I do like, and that's where I think to the original conversation, I agree that I think principles can be very useful. I think it's that it is more commonly actually causing damage with a lot of people. Because I, when I do seminars, I see a lot of people when they're passing or playing guard where their, their head is boxed in trying to follow some rule. And yeah. then they become really inhibited, right? And so for people like that telling them, hey, you, you can violate these things, you know, there are things to keep an eye out for, but you can't violate them. And then also understanding that like, there is principles that are more across the board true than others, right? So like you could say always have posture. That's probably not always true, but it's often true. But then you could say don't get submitted. That's probably a 100% true principle, <laughs> right? right? You don't want to get submitted. That is a true principle, right? Like never put your arm in with your other arm out because you will get triangles. Right? Like that's a, so there's different like confidence levels of principles. So I think that you have to be very careful or like deliver a confidence level in a principle, like one I've been using a lot more recently with like guard passing is the idea, it seems obvious, but that to really finish any guard pass at all, ever, you need both of their shoulder blades pinned to the mat and you chest on chest. Yes. By definition, that is true, right? Like that, that's not even necessarily a principle. It's just a fact that to actually get points for a guard pass, you need their shoulder blades flat and your chest on chest. Now, maybe the ref will be kind of you know, a little bit off if you're on the side, that's debatable. But generally for a clean guard pass, you need their shoulder blades pinned, right? If yeah. I'm around side, but you're completely on your side turned into me, you still have a lot of fight left in you and you can scramble, you could turn into a double leg, whatever, right? So if you know that's a true thing, then you can backwards rationalize when you're passing like, okay, well, I have to get to that end point. So if I back up a ton to try to get around his guard, I've just increased that much more distance to the end point. So mm -hmm. a lot of times when I'm passing, I'm kind of like, if I'm in a position where I don't have a clear plan or something, 
I can kind of have an intuitive feeling of where his shoulder blades are and use that as like a compass to try to guide his shoulder blades back flat and get chest over chest so that I can find a way down. I also find if I get chest over chest and their shoulder blades flat early, then even if they push me, they just push themselves directly into the floor as opposed to pushing me away and sliding away. So like that, I would put the confidence level of that true statement. The same thing with like for them to pass or guard, they have to get inside your elbow knee space. That is also a true statement, right? Yeah. So, but then like, you know, something like say along the lines of like never cross your feet, right? And arm bar, that might be sometimes true, or it might even be more commonly true than not, but it will be violated more often than the definition of chest on chest, for example. Yeah. So you need to be very careful what, you're defining uh, as a principle or a guideline and with what confidence level. It's funny you mentioned that. I've sort of moved away from the language of saying the principles just because when people hear principle, they think you're talking about a commandment, basically. And they, they yeah. think you're talking about something that is never questioned. And, and the word principle even carries with it some degree of almost like moral standing. You know, if I say yeah. that something is a principle, I'm kind of not just saying that this is what you should do, but the word makes it sound like I'm also saying this is the right thing to do. You know, it, and that can carry more weight than what is, I think, intended. So what I use now is I prefer to use words like concepts, which just means an idea. Or a mental yeah, model, sure. right? I mean, our show, yeah. BJJ Mental Models, I love that term because that literally means just a block of knowledge that you can use or discard as you you see fit, just a pattern that you can identify, and it doesn't always apply. Yeah, you brought up some great examples there, and I think that where the rules, the principles, or, or the concepts can be useful is when the, you're describing how something works and you're not prescribing behavior. So, for example, the example you gave about pinning someone's shoulders that is objectively true because under the rules, you're not really even telling people what to do. You're just describing exactly how they're going to score points. You're saying homie's shoulders have to be pinned to the mat if you want to complete a guard pass. There are reasons why that's good. It's going to be much easier to stabilize the position if your opponent cannot get up to their side. But objectively speaking, if you want to get the guard pass, you got to pin their shoulders. So it's okay to create an idea that describes that. But if, where I think things get more problematic is where there's no mechanics involved in it, but you're just prescribing behavior. Like, you know, if you say something like always stand up if you're on the bottom or always shoot sure. a takedown, things like that, where they're prescriptive and there's no there's no basis in the reality of describing how the body works or describing how the rules work. That's where it gets dangerous. But I think if you've got a concept that you want to share and you're just explaining how the body works or how the rules work, that's where this stuff can be more useful because then it sounds less preachy and you're just giving people an idea that describes how the world operates, right? I, I think that the best principles, if you would call them that, or concepts are the ones where they don't prescribe behavior but they just explain how the world around you works and how the rules work. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. I just think making sure that, you know, the students understand the context of what being said. And like I said, yeah, there's a big difference between different principles. Like, you know, and I think that's where, like you said, yeah, I agree with everything you said basically. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's all I care about. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I bring this up because a lot of people have, talked about this on the podcast, just how when you get to a certain point in your jujitsu journey, it becomes less about adding on new stuff and more about discarding the stuff that 
just isn't working for you anymore. Mm. I had uh, Chris Paynes on the podcast the other day, and he brought this up. I've heard so many people say this. I, I both myself and my brother has said this, that when we got to Brown Belt, we kind of had a sort of an, a crisis where we realized that a lot of what got us here and a lot of the things that we were learning were techniques and tactics and that only really make sense up to brown belt. And then at that point, a lot of the things that got you there, you kind of have to take off and discard like training wheels. I really changed my mindset when I got to black belt. And a big part of that was a lot of these principles that were prescribed to me. I started questioning them and I kind of realized that, okay, maybe these things aren't actually as ironclad as I thought. Right. Yeah, actually, a thought there, sorry to interrupt. I was thinking about the idea of like principles as opposed to like specific knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I would say principles is like the macro approach, right? Yeah. And then like specific knowledge, like exactly what to do in, in an exact situation or context is like micro, right? So like you can like, if you play chess at all, like you understand that like when you get to like the mid game, there's too many possibilities to really look ahead, right? So you kind of have to function on like general ideas of what is a good position in mm-hmm. theory, right? Because it's too difficult to look ahead. You can only look ahead. Like if I call check, you have to get out of check, right? Yeah. So I know you have to get out of check. So there's only limited moves that will get you out of check. You're either going to move out of check, put something in the way or take a piece, right? Or if I take a piece, maybe you have to take a piece back so that you're not down on points. But when it's just in the middle of the game, it's so hard to look at because there's so many possibilities. You have to kind of function on principles, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're in the beginning and like someone makes a common mistake that gets punished, you can memorize specific knowledge. Now, I would say specific knowledge would always trump principles if you had perfect knowledge of everything, but you can't. So like if you were the most powerful computer in the universe, right? And you can calculate literally everything, then you would be able to find all these weird little rules that break the the principles. But because we're, we can't do that, you have to function off of these principles because it's the best you can do with the processing power that you have. So to move that over to jujitsu, I would say something like the chest over chest statement is true about finishing the guard pass. So that when I am passing often, I'm trying to get as close to chest over chest as I can so that I get try to get as close chest over chest as I can and then clear the legs rather than backing up, clearing the legs and then trying to get chest over chest. Mm-hmm. I generally find that easier, but sometimes you can find weird niche cases where it's like, well, I'm far away, but if I stomp the guy's leg, it spins him in a way that actually yanks him in close to chest over chest. So then that would violate that idea of I want to get chest over chest early, right? Or yeah. you could add in like dropping back takes And actually, when I do a dropping back take, I actually like to be a little bit further away. So that kind of functions a little bit different than the past. So then when you're combining the threat, I would say like in a schema lock, right? So if I'm trying to pass De La Hiva guard, I could have principles that work great for like passing De La Hiva guard, but those have nothing to do with the principle of what makes an esteem lock work. Mm-hmm. So that when you overlay both of those possibilities for victory and passing De La Hiva, I can win De La Hiva by passing it, or I can win it by esteem locking them. And those two things are operating on different principles, right? The principles that lead to passing won't necessarily be the principles that lead to an ankle lock, right? Exactly. So that's where it becomes a bit like complicated. So because I know it's going to be so hard to actually have a perfect answer for everything, it is good to have some principles that you kind of keep in mind and help guide you through some of those like tricky spots where you don't know what to do. But still, I think... If you have deep specific knowledge on a particular position, 
you can get really far with that. Like in the openings in chess, if you know that opening extremely well, even if a guy has amazing principles in the mid game, if he's playing in an opening that you know very well, you might crush him, even if he's way better than you overall, because he just falls into pre-knowledge that you already have. So that's where I would say you need that balance of the principles, but also deep specific knowledge in individual positions, like your whole game plan for close guard, your whole game plan for spider guard, your whole game plan for worm guard. So you need like depth of knowledge in individual positions and then kind of principle-based understanding of jujitsu as a whole. I think both of those serve their place. Yeah, I love the example you bring up about how sometimes the principles can contradict each other depending on your objective. Right. A great example, like you said, is side control. I mean, if I'm trying to pass your guard and take side control, if that's my objective, yeah, I want to have both your shoulders pinned to the mat. But if I'm passing and I see the opportunity to take a Darce choke and I'm really awesome at Darce chokes. I was about to use the exact same analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Th- then I want you on your side. So Correct. These, it, so it's so contextual and situationally dependent. And all of that nuance comes down to how good are you at making decisions in the moment? Uh, and that's the, the thing that I think we often fail to tell our, our white belts. If I told a white belt, here is a principle. Whenever you are in the middle of a guard pass, thou must put both of their shoulders on the mat, flat to the mat. If people follow that to the letter, they will never do a Darce choke because they're trying to pass and that closes their mind to another possibility. So it is a tricky one, but I, I think that what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense, which is specific knowledge in the moment, in any given micro situation is almost always going to triumph because Correct. Yeah. if you've drilled Barambolos 10,000 times and you try to bolo me and I am only familiar with Barambolos at a conceptual level. And just by virtue of repetition, you're going to be way better at it than me and you're likely to get it. Right. However, if push comes to shove, it's better for me to have at least a broad conceptual framework to understand things so that I can basically freestyle. That, that's where I see concepts yeah, as being sure. useful is they allow you to get creative in the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the best example I can give is uh, when my daughter was born, I took about a year and a half off of jujitsu. And this is when the leg lock game really started to come into the open. There wasn't a lot of leg locking going on at a high level when I left. And when I came back, suddenly everyone's doing leg locks and I didn't really know how to defend this stuff. So I got a bunch of blue belts whooping my ass for a good week or two. But what I realized pretty quick was, okay, well, look, I don't need to be a master at leg locks in order to defend this stuff. I just need to conceptually understand how not to let this person entangle my leg. And at a high level, the the idea there is not that different from preventing single leg X guard or Delaheva guard or any traditional stuff. I just don't want to give them my leg and let them tie up my knee line. That's basically it. And so even though I didn't have a lot of specific applicable knowledge about leg locks, just by knowing the concepts, I was able to pattern recognize pretty quick and get out of that game and back into the, the stuff that I wanted to do. So the concepts and stuff helps, but the person who has drilled a specific application 10,000 times, if they're able to force the game into that place, of course, they're going to win just by virtue of being more knowledgeable. Correct. Yeah. And I think like with Gi especially, because of the entanglements, it is way more, I think, realistic than like in chess to actually control the situation. Because like in chess, the opening you can memorize, 
But like, as you get like later and later into the game, it becomes very, you can't memorize that far into chess. So then you really do have to start functioning off of kind of just fundamental understanding. Yeah. But in jujitsu, you can kind of like restart the beginning of the game over and over. So like I could be passing open guard as a whole and there's all this chaotic stuff. But once he grabs my leg and we are in De La Hiva, it's like now it's like isolated more, right? It's like yeah. I've narrowed it down. So you can kind of narrow down niche positions that you do develop that. So you can be in the open game where everything as a whole is out there, but then you, it is way more reasonable in jiu-jitsu to like, go, okay, I'm going to learn every permutation of what could happen starting from double sleeve is a way more realistic goal than like, I'm going to learn every permutation of every move someone can make in chess. Yeah. It's funny because this is a, a misconception I had about jujitsu when I started. I sort of had it in my head when I was a beginner that when you're a black belt, that means you can just kind of magically do any technique you want and you know everything. <laughs> I, I sort of assumed, you know, if you're a black belt, you can basically say eight ball in the corner pocket and get it. You know, if you, you could just call your shot and do it like Gordon Ryan. I, mm. I assume that's what being a black belt was about and that your knowledge was basically complete across the spectrum. But what I realize now is no matter how much you train, the knowledge and the development of something like jujitsu is potentially infinite. I mean, the one of the main differences between something like jujitsu and chess, everyone loves to draw that parallel, right? But with chess, at least if you made a move, you made a move and it would always be the same regardless of who did it. I mean, if you move your pawn two steps yeah. forward, it doesn't matter who did that. It's always the same. Whereas in jujitsu, your triangle might not be the same as my triangle, might not be the same as someone else's triangle, right? Mm -hmm, so sure. it's yeah. it's not always exactly the same. I mean, if if I were to put someone in a triangle, they would probably not be super threatened because I'm not really a triangle guy. But if you did that, the situation would be totally different. And the way you do that move would be different from the way I do it even though it's technically the the same move. So I just find that one of the things about jujitsu is there is so much variability and that's where the concepts are helpful because they give people a broad understanding of things that they don't even specialize in. But I feel like if you want to really be able to, to win successfully and repeatably, you got to be able to pull the game back into the stuff that you do know really, really well. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you have the concepts as a backup so that you understand everything at a right, high level. Yeah. But what I want to do is I want to funnel this game into the place where I've drilled this 10,000 times and you haven't, right? That's, that's right. the idea. Yeah. I think the longer you train, the closer you're going to get towards like having depth of understand. I even like, you probably don't mean it this way, but when you say drilled that like 10,000 times, I more think of it in terms of like, I have 10,000 hours, maybe specific training in that position. Right. As opposed to like drilling a technique. Cause it's more like, I want to like, if I start in De La Hiva, you know, there's so many variables like, He's holding my right leg and I'm my right leg's leading, right? And his left hand's on my ankle. His left hand could be on my ankle. It could be on my pant leg. He could be leg hugging. He could be underhooked de la Hiva. It could be Kyotera ankle lock de la Hiva. Even if he's holding my pant leg, he can grab the cuff. He can grab the calf material. He could do a lapel feed with a leg hug, right? And then his right leg could be looking for my far sleeve, my cross sleeve, my cross collar, my same side collar, my belt, my knee. His right leg can be wide, leg extended, knee tight, knee shielded, leg trapped, leg trapped, knee shielded. Like there's probably, I could like run through that forever. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's all these like variations. Right. And like I've kind of just over like, you know, 18, however long I've been training years training, you know, in that position, I've just developed solid answers and ideas of what works. But even within the position, I have kind of like 
techniques and, and things I understand and principles within the position. Like, okay, if his legs are tighter, it's going to be hard to, to like uh, stuff the leg all the way through or do like a, I just call it a deal, like even knee smash where I shove the leg behind me and drop. Yeah. But when his legs tighter, I can leg drag, reverse leg drag. But if his legs more extended, you can't leg drag, reverse leg drag because it's going to hit you. So then usually I'm looking to stuff it behind me more or trap it and step over it and knee cut or something. So like the more you spend time in that position, you just learn all these variables and depth in that position. But I do think that it is, there's a few core grips in jujitsu that are so common that it's worth trying to go mega deep and memorize the common patterns there. Cause it's just going to be way easier than trying to reinvent them every time through principles. But of course, there's going to be times where you fight someone and they're just a little bit wacky and stuff and kind of knowing generally what you're looking for is very useful too. Yeah. There's always going to be that one crazy guy who does something you don't expect. Like they try to Ezekiel choke you from bottom mount or something. Right. And at that point, if you see a situation that you simply haven't encountered before or that catches you off guard, having a broad conceptual knowledge helps. But yeah, to your earlier point, I when I say drilling, I'm not talking about dead drilling. I yeah, sure. kind yeah. of find that dead dead drilling has very limited utility, and we can kind of get into that in a second. But I feel that the most useful drilling is drilling with the opponent providing some degree of reasonable resistance so that you can kind of see what their predictable reactions would be. Yeah. Because that, that's where the value is, right? The value in in training and in drilling is not in just banging off a hundred reps of a move against a guy who's doing nothing. The value is you see how they respond and you see, okay, well, if he grabs my arm here, this happens. If he grabs my leg here, this happens. And you start to develop kind of like a, an ingrained decision tree in your brain where you just get comfortable with all of those options. And the goal is to train it frequently enough that you can kind of go onto autopilot on that stuff and you don't even have to stop and think, right? That's the idea. And that just takes excessive amounts of, of training to get to that point. But yeah, on, on the topic of dead drilling, I mean, that's that's a great example. We talked about mimicry and, and drilling and how for a white belt or a new person, sometimes it's good to tell them, just copy me, right? Just do what I say. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't think too much about it. And I find that's an interesting way to get people started in, in jujitsu where when they come in from day one, from, you know, just at the beginning, we don't, we don't sit them down and we don't explain all of the, the conceptual stuff out of the gate. We tell the person, we tell the white belt, okay, we're, we want you to do some drills of this, do some hip bumps, do some hip escapes, do some armbar drills, just get comfortable with the movement. We're not even explaining to them why they do it. We're just getting the body moving so that they start becoming familiar with this. I wonder how you feel about that. When you start a new person off, do you kind of just give them things to copy or do you sit them down and give them the whole lecture out of the gate? Well, it would be different if I'm like running a class versus if I'm just trying to make someone get better. I think, you know, because like my situation when I'm like working as a coach is I'm I'm like working as a coach, but I'm also worried about my own development. Yeah. And then also worried about like trying to create content for online and stuff. So I'm not really in that phase yet where I'm like a full-time coach and everything. So to me, ideally the way if I just in my picture perfect world, if if people come in and I want to make them immediately become more effective at jujitsu in the beginning, it would all be specific training, right? So it would be the first class would be like, okay, you're going to start in a triangle choke. I would show the basics of finishing a triangle choke, right? The ideas of how the guy might defend, the ideas of how to finish it. And then I would just start them in the triangle choke and have them try to finish it starting from like a sub position, like the guy's arm is here, right? And then the guy on top can resist from there. So then they're immediately getting real sparring with resistance, 
Yeah. Right. But in a very micro situation with not that many combinations. Right. So it's like in chess, it'd be like teaching someone to like, hey, here's how you checkmate with like two rooks. Right. And they can just start from there. It's easy. Right. They can calculate that. So then you, you know, then they go get a finish in the triangle choke and go, okay, well, now you got the triangle choke, but the guy's holding your belt. You know, okay. So then they spar with that for a bit. And then you go, okay, now you're going to start with like closed guard and you already have the overhook on their arm and their wrist. And from here, you have to progress to getting the choke finish, right? And you can like reverse engineer that until eventually they just have solid skills at all those things, right? And but then like all of their training is like with sparring and good resistance that's actually leveling up what they're doing. It's not like, you know, like, okay, here's a trial stroke. Now go spar from standing. Because then there's just a <laughs> lot of wasted time. Yeah. 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 It's funny. It's funny you bring that up. I feel like the the dead drilling approach where your opponent is just giving no resistance and you're just asking someone to bang off a bunch of reps. A lot of people do that, but I feel like it's got extraordinarily limited usefulness. I'm not going to say it's not useful, but I think it's only useful up to the point where it starts to move into a person's muscle memory. I mean, if you bring in a day one white belt and you ask them to do an arm bar and it is such an alien concept to them that they don't even know how to move their body and what the idea is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think think at that point, getting them to do a few dozen reps just to get comfortable with the movement is helpful. But- as soon as possible, I think you want to start migrating them into a situation where now their opponent is starting to show them how a real human would respond. Right. Yeah, for sure. So much of jujitsu is not just, and this is a mistake I made for years too. I thought it was all about executing the move perfectly, right? Textbook. Like I want it to look mm. like it looks like in jujitsu university where I'm just doing everything perfectly. But in reality, nothing ever goes according to plan. It, it's Correct. less about yeah. how well you've ingrained the steps and more about how fluidly you can transition depending on whatever dumbass thing your opponent does, right? Right, yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't, there's, it's impossible to show how to do a technique correctly, because, like perfectly, because it's like there's so many ways his body can be positioned and like how he can respond and move. So like, yeah, that's why like I, I agree with you. Like if the person is at a motor level where it's like, you know, like do an arm bar, they literally can't even make their body do what they want, then like a, you know, resistanceless drill is probably useful, right? But like at the point that they can actually move their body more, you want to get to resistance as quickly as possible because then you're learning. Then you're going, oh man, I can't do it. He's like pulling this way. It's like, oh, well, when he does that, you need to do this. Okay. Now you're getting context. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so you want to get to the sparring format as quickly as possible because that's when you learn. Yeah. it's And that's also, I think the point where you start to layer in things like concepts. I don't know about you, but I feel like you you need to wait a little bit before you start overloading people on concepts. I, the way that I... When you say concepts, do you mean the same thing as like principles like we were talking about before? Yeah, in the, for the purposes of this conversation, okay. yeah. Where I'm talking less about specific micro details and more about the big yeah. ideas. The example I give is if you've got a toddler, or actually not even a toddler, if you've got an infant and you want to teach them to speak... You don't sit them down and explain grammatical structure and prose to them, right? <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Exactly my point. Yes. Yeah. You start yeah. off with little tiny words and they mimic and then you give them bigger words and they mimic and then bigger words and then eventually you start combining words. And then once they have some degree of applicable knowledge and they can actually speak, then you can start explaining to them, okay, here's what grammar is. And you need to explain that yeah, because for sure. if you never have that conversation where you teach them about grammar and prose, then their growth is going to be stunted. 
And as soon as you teach them that, then they can start to learn patterns. They can start to accelerate their learning. But what you don't want to do is take that toddler and teach them when they're two years old. Okay, here's here are the rules of grammatical structure. They'll have no idea what you're going on about. Yeah, exactly. I think the same thing applies in jujitsu as well, where you would not necessarily want to take someone who has no idea what they're doing and sit them down and give them a one-hour lecture on concepts, right? I think the first thing to do is to get the body moving and get them to try a few base movements and just get somewhat familiar with it, even if they're not perfect. And then once they start to be able to put these things into practice, that's when you start to layer on things like concepts and ideas, because that's when they at least have a foundational basis that they can build on top of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, totally agree. (laughs) So uh, something I would ask is when it comes to principles that you put in front of uh, your students, do you ever teach people things that you knowingly will have them discard at a later date? This is an interesting debate, whether white belts should be taught different rules from people on beyond. Robert Deagle was talking to us about this and about how sometimes the, just for scaffolding and just for training wheels, you'll give white belts certain rules just to get them out of the gate, but you know you need to unravel that logic later. Well, I would just, I would just give them a caveat when I told them, like, I would just say, hey, as a general rule right now, try to keep your head up most of the time. That's not always going to be true. But right now, it's too complicated to be able to explain the answer yeah. for every situation. So as a general rule right now, keep your head up. But later on, we'll we'll touch that again. I would always yeah. like, give them context. I think that's really important to do. I wouldn't want to tell them that. Otherwise, they would just like they would just think that's true. And it's like telling them Santa's real or something. (laughs) Well, I think that's important too, because you might have it in your head as the instructor. You know, I'll just tell Jose to do this, knowing that when he's brown belt, I've got to unravel it. But the reality is people move around, people change, they switch instructors, they move out of the city. So you as the instructor might not be there to correct that mistake at a later date. So if you're giving someone placeholder knowledge, I think it is important to disclose to them and say, just so you know, this is a, this is a white belt hack, but when you get to blue belt, we're going to, we're going to tighten that up a little bit because you're going to want to expand beyond it. I, I think it's important to say that just because you might not be the instructor who takes them all the way through to the end of their journey. Yeah, that makes complete sense for sure. Got it. So I'd love to dig into this a little bit deeper. You talked about some principles and concepts that you believe are useful. Are there any others, any things that you generally add as part of your your repertoire and your your teaching portfolio, just general concepts that are useful for students to understand, which we haven't gotten into yet? You mean as far as like things like the chest over chest concept? Mean? Yeah, yeah. Like what are what are your top five or whatever? What are the things that you always tell students out of the gate? I, I've certainly found that the more people I teach, there are a handful of things that always come up over and over again. And I'm sure that you've had a similar thing too. I'm just wondering if you've got any big ideas or big concepts that are always worth knowing, even if they might have exceptions here or there. Yeah, sure. When you're in guard, the more distance you have, the more safe you are. Just in general, in, in guard, distance is better. Almost every guard you play is better when you have distance, when you play further back. Even close guard, you can like play further. You can extend your hips and play with your upper body farther away because it's easier to break posture. If they do clear your legs, your chest is farther away, so you have more time to get your guard back in. So generally keeping distance is the most important thing. It's more important than even the guards you choose to play because in the same body positioning of my opponent, there's more, I could choose to play De La Hiva. I could go to a single leg. I could grab a sleeve and all three of those could be valid depending on whatever skill set you have. 
But the main thing is keep distance. If you have distance, you're going to be safer, right? So that I think distance from guard, the reverse of that on top is trying to get chest over chest and, and take away space. I would say another major one, it's not like a technique as much, but it's the idea that you need to take what your opponent gives you, not what you want. You can't mm -hmm. go into a match trying to do the technique you want. Oh, I want to do a knee cut, right? Like you have to be adapting to the moment, right? So you need to like pay attention to the positioning of your opponent. When you like are paying attention to the positioning of your opponent, it will help you decide what to do. And then if you don't know what to do based off of their positioning, then at least you know where you don't know what to do. A lot of people, they'll have a problem when they roll and I'll say, okay, what happened? And I'll say, where was he? And they're like, well, I don't know. I was like, did he have the sleeve or the pant? They're like, uh, I don't know, either one, whatever. I'm like, no, that matters. That's everything. <laughs> Makes a difference. So you need to be observing your opponent, you know, uh, acting rather than thinking. Like people get analysis paralysis because mm -hmm. they're trying to think about the technique in a role. You can't think about the technique while you roll. You just need to act. If you want to think about technique, you need to do specific training or like drilling so you can like have time to pause, go back, look at it, reflect and feel it out, right? And then do specific sparring. But when I'm in a normal role, I just, I don't think about anything. I'm just present to the moment and I allow whatever pops into my head to be there. And I just respond to whatever my brain gives me. Right. Yeah. It's like, if I ask you, what's the capital of America, you'll be like, oh, it's Washington, DC. You didn't have to prepare before this conversation in case I asked you that question. You just, I ask it and then your knowledge just pops up. It's like, oh yeah, that's the answer. And it's relevant when it's there. So you're, you can't be better than you are. So you have to just, when you're in a normal role, right? Not separated from like, you know, specific training, you need to be present to the moment and just allow what comes to you to come to you. Right. And then you'll at least learn where you have holes. And then on separate days, on technical days, you focus more on like specific training, learning technique work and things like that. So you need to make sure you have those two separated. Outside of that, those are the main ones I can think about. Uh, it's funny you bring that up because there's a... Have you ever read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? Because he talks about this quite a bit. I think I listened to the blinkest of it, and I think I, I get the general idea. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean, the general idea, it's one of those books, of course, that is like a... It's going to take you forever to read. It's very big and very dry. But the core idea behind it is very, very simple. Basically, he he suggests that there are two systems of decision making in your brain. There is the fast system, which is basically, for lack of a better term, muscle memory. It's just where you go yeah. based on instinct and based on training. And then yeah. there's the slow system, which is where you're engaging the cognitive, deliberative, calculating part of your brain. And they both have strengths and weaknesses, right? If you're thinking from a calculating standpoint, you can you can do incredibly complex calculations in your brain, right. but it's slow. And in a fight, if you're having to engage that part of your brain, you're always going to be several steps behind your opponent. So right, the, exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so the goal of training, really, at the end of the day, the goal of training is to take whatever game plan and strategy you have and ingrain it into your mind such that you can engage it from almost a muscle memory instinctual level. That's really what training is all about. The reason we should be structuring our, our training the way that we are is because we're trying to take these things that conceptually makes sense to the, the calculating part of our brain and just 
repeat them and train them enough that we don't even have to think about them anymore. They just kind of happen, like driving a car, right? You could never drive a car effectively if you had to stop and think about everything like you did the first day you got behind the wheel, right? Where you have to think about every damn thing because you don't know how it works. The only reason driving works is because once you've done it enough, you can, I mean, as you know, you can basically go from point A to point B. You can drive through a whole city and not even have to think about it if you've got enough practice because you just know how everything works and it's ingrained in your muscle memory. And that's a big part of of jujitsu is once you figure out what your game plan is going to look like, just codifying it into your body itself so that it just knows how to move properly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes when you drive, you just like wake up in your home. If you don't remember driving home. <laughs> sometimes that happens in jujitsu as well. I mean, sometimes you, you basically sleepwalk through a whole match, right? Because you're just on autopilot and your body just knows what to do. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So something I would like to expand upon, you mentioned that as a, from the guard, you always encourage putting distance between yourself and your opponents. And I presume you're talking about from the perspective of the guard player, right? Not the guard passer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The pastor wants to be closer. Yeah. Yeah. So this is ties into common knowledge that I was also taught. You know, I was told that when you're on the offense, you generally want to take away space. When you're on the defense, you generally want to create space. Usually a good rule across the board. But I, I would ask you then with that framework, how do things like X guard, single leg X guard, butterfly guard fit in? Because in my mind, when you play that game, you're actually trying to take away space. You're trying, at least to me, the way I think of it is you're trying to get under your opponent and close the distance. Yeah. So actually, actually, no, even single leg X is better with more distance. So you like, you can be in single leg X, but then you can play it more stretched away from the person. So like mm-hmm. if I'm in single leg X and I have my left heel on their hip and my right foot like kind of like under their tailbone or whatever, I can be there or I can like be in that exact same configuration, but slide back a little bit, right? Right. And when you do that, you actually have way more force to knock them back. And then it's easier for you to uh, stand up as well because like if they're directly over top of you and your shoulder blades are pinned, it's very hard for you to try to come up on a pass. Right. So I'm not saying that like you can never like, of course, if I took that to its extreme, I would be running out of the room. Right. (laughs) Which maybe is not a bad strategy. Honestly, that is the best form of self-defense is just to escape. (laughs) So, so like if I'm going for like an omoplata or something, if I put an omoplata on the closer I am to him with the omoplata, the easier it is for him to posture out. If I put an omoplata on and I slide back like two feet, it breaks his posture and brings him Mm -hmm. to the floor. You know, in closed guard even, I could be like in closed guard, but I can actually kind of extend my upper torso like away from them. And if I get a collar choke, it's like easier to break them down for the choke, right? So yeah, so even in X guard, I would argue that you can kind of like elongate, it's hard, I would almost need video to show it, but you can kind of elongate away from them. Uh, I don't want them directly over top of my shoulder blades, right? Because if, if my weight is loaded on my shoulder blades, it's very hard to move. I mean, think about it. Objectively, you can never come up if your shoulder blades are on the mat. One shoulder blade has to come up first to be able to ever stand up. Yeah, if, if your goal is to do any sort of technical stand-up from there, it, you simply cannot right. do it if your opponent is right on top of you. And if you just off of just if you just want to feel it, go to your back and then just try to imagine playing guard, be on your back, and then keep both shoulder blades pinned to the mat the whole time. You can't move at all. Like it's so clunky feeling, right? Now you can be centered 
and kind of crunch or be a little bit on your side and your shoulder blade comes up, immediately you feel like you can move. But if you keep both shoulder blades pinned to the mat and then just try to pretend you're playing guard, you'll feel completely locked and restricted, right? It's like trying to spin a book, like a top. It's like a, you can't spin it because there's too much on the floor. So yeah, you like uh, I feel like if I'm in X guard and I allow them to get too too much over top of me, my shoulder blades get pinned and I start to feel a little bit stuck. If you watch like Lucas Lepre pass or um, Marcio Andre, who I was watching someone this week, I mean, it was Fabricio Andre. Uh, you know, you can see them when they're on top of that position, they really crowd over top of the guy's shoulder blades. I don't think there's necessarily a conflict there. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember when I started learning single leg X, I really struggled with it at first because what would happen every time I got underneath my opponent is they would squat down on top of me and pin my shoulders to the floor and then they're they're in tight and close to me and I can't move, right? I, I think everyone's had yeah. that happen to them, especially in the gi and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong and then after troubleshooting it, I realized the problem was... I was letting them get in too close to me. And and the solution for me was to straighten my spine and you basically use my spine as a, what Rob Bernacki would call a spine frame. So basically if I if I straighten and elongate myself, then my hip and my spine are acting like a frame and they cannot squat down on top of me. So I, I think I see what you're saying, where even if you're underneath the person and you're trying to wrap up around their foot, you still want to stretch yourself out of it because you don't want them to be able to squat down and base on top of you because then you'll never get out right that's kind of the way that you kill single leg x guard is if you can squat down on top of the person yeah for sure i mean if they get their weight over your shoulder blades it becomes very uh difficult to move i mean sometimes you will pass through that plane probably again this is why i think like you know there's probably contexts mm -hmm. like like take a single leg right like i get very tight on the leg with the single leg but i do kind of back my hips up quite a bit to be able to stand up right so I, I don't want to be able to show up. So I come up to the single leg, but I almost like back up when I, I stand up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trying to think of other cases that that might not be true. I mean, if you do a triangle choke, you always want to back away once you put it on because it breaks their posture. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, yeah, it's pretty much most of the time true. Even matrixing is easier when I'm back farther. Yeah, it's just, it's hard when you're, when you're directly under the person. I mean, I like going directly under the person. It just plays into my game, but to your point, maybe half guard. Yeah. If you're playing deep half, maybe that would be a case. Yeah. To, to your point though, usually you're doing that just to create awkward angles for your opponent that you can then transition through and, and out of. Cause if you just sit underneath your opponent forever, you're probably going to get stuck down there. Right. So normally it's, uh, you have to be kind of fluid if you want to go right under your opponent. You never want them to sit on top of you and get comfortable doing that. Yeah. I mean, I would say generally you don't want your shoulder blades on the mat. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, good chat, John. Is there anything about principles that you wanted to get into here that we didn't cover? Any uh, warning flags for people to consider when they're teaching or, or things that you think people should generally add to their repertoire in terms of principles, concepts? Curious to get your final thoughts. I think it's just really important to disconnect your like logical understanding with your rolling. So you need to have some training sessions that are like specific where you work on, you know, 
problems or issues you want to develop on. Like, oh, I want to work on finishing the arm bar from this specific spot. And then like you specific spar from there, you have time to stop and go back and look at the position. Oh, what did you do here? That was difficult. You can even reference video real quick in the middle of the session. So like deep technical sessions where you evolve your understanding that involves specific sparring and drilling and video watching and conversation and all of that. It's like technical sessions. And then you need to have sessions where you turn your brain completely off and you just are in the moment rolling. And I think honestly, probably most of the people listening to this podcast need less technique and more turning their brain off just because of the title of the podcast is probably, you're probably attracting people who are intellectual with this show because usually people who are like meathead dumbos don't watch a show like this, right? <laughs> so those people probably need more analytical thinking time. The, honestly, most of the people who are really analytical and thinking deeply and stuff, they need the opposite. They need to like have rounds where they go in, they completely turn their brain off. They forget all their systems and all of their, you know, everything. And they allow their intuition to take over. And, if, and you just have to trust that like your deeper understanding of like, take the shoulder blade concept, right? Like the shoulder blade concept, the positions, you know, and everything you have to trust that even without thinking that somehow that has affected like the deeper kind of neuro framework of your brain so that even your subconscious does that. It's, it's like a weird thing where like you have this feeling that you need to think to do good moves. And there's like this, almost this fear that if you turn off the thinking and just go and just like let everything go and just move and trust that like you're, there's like this, like almost like a divine intervention that whatever your body's doing is just correct. You just have to have blind faith that whatever your body's going to do is correct, right? Obviously, it's not actually going to be the case, but you you have to trust that your body is whatever. At that moment, that's the best thing you could have done with what your body is giving you. And you be in that, that flow state of actually being present to the moment and you forget all your systems, you're not inhibited. That's when your best jujitsu is going to appear, right? And most people, especially when they're newer, they're so caught up in the technique they learned that day or the principle or whatever system they're trying to run that they get so stifled when they're rolling that they're like, oh, what's the thing I'm supposed to be? Uh, like, let it go and just let out everything, right? On a separate day, allow your analytical brain to be there to break shit down, but have some sessions where you go in, you turn the brain off completely and you just enter flow state and just trust that anything you do is right, right? And then yeah. afterwards, you can reflect on what happened. You're like, man, it was interesting when that thing happened. And like, then you can take notes on what came out of that in the moment, right? It's very much like meditation almost. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, that jujitsu is is really at its best when you're doing it mindfully, when you're kind of in the moment, you're not stuck in your own head. Actually, in my mind, one of the, the best things about jujitsu is that it's kind of forced mindfulness. It's very, very hard to be thinking about what you're going to do at work tomorrow if when you're on yeah, the mat sparring sure. with someone. And the best, the best sparring happens that way. There is a time when you're in the lab, you're at the gym, you're trying to add new things to your game. That's when you want to stop and be deliberative and ask questions and think about things. But when you're acting actually sparring to spar to try to win, the best thing to do is to be in the moment. And the goal is to internalize your knowledge such that you can do it in the moment, like with driving a car, right? Where you don't even need to think about it. You're just, you're basically on autopilot. That's really where you want to get with jujitsu if you want to be able to execute right. effectively. Correct. A hundred percent. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, John, with that said, where can people find you if they want to check out your work? I know you've got some awesome stuff out there. How do people look you up? 
Yeah. So I have a YouTube channel, John Thomas BJJ, Instagram, John Thomas BJJ. And now I have a website, which is www.johnthomasbjj.com. You have to put the www part. I'm going to figure that out soon. So I've been saying that for a while. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. And I can put the links in the show notes as well. So I'll make sure people find it. Yeah. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. And of course, to anyone who wants more of our stuff, you can check out Premium. BJJ Mental Models has an awesome premium service where there's a ton of much deeper conversations we have uh, in terms of BJJ concepts and philosophy and strategy. We also offer rolling review services so you can send me your footage and I'll take a look and break it down for you. That's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com if you're interested. Again, please do check it out. There's a free trial. That's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. John, thanks so much, man. Always fun to chat with you. Really appreciate you sharing your thoughts here. I think this is a fun chat and I think it's always... Yeah, super cool. It's always interesting to dig into people's opinions on concepts, principles, techniques. So hopefully this helps clarify how all of these pieces fit together for the listeners. For sure. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, buddy. And of course, to all of the listeners, thanks to you as well. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.